Good morning. Welcome to First Baptist. You know, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is where two or more are gathered, he is there. And God is not constrained by social distancing. So we are all together. And uh, I appreciate you being here today. Um, again, I'm Dave Otter, and I'm a professor at Winthrop. And I've been here for 20 years, and most of that time I've been teaching adult Bible. And uh, so I guess one of my titles is teacher. It's one of my favorite. I have a couple other titles I like. My new title is Grandpa. And that is my favorite title of all time. There's the best thing ever. Um, I am a father of two, and um, I'm also married to this wonderful woman over here, whose name is Gail. You actually may know her more than me because she's often over here in this corner playing her 12-string acoustic guitar with the praise team and having such a great time doing it. So I'm just happy to be here with you. And um, when Jeff asked me to take this spot, a while ago, I said, yes, because I love teaching. And I love teaching God's word. And so I was pretty excited about it until the more and more I thought about it. And, I, you know, being in a small group Bible study is different than here. And, um, but I'm also honored to be able to teach God's word with my whole church family, which I've never been able to do before. So I'm so looking forward to being here with you and teaching on becoming the intellectual Christian with loving God with your whole mind. So this is a sacred place, this is a sacred time, and we're going to go to God's sacred word. So let's go back to God one more time in prayer with me, please. Would you bow your heads and your hearts with me? Father, what a great honor it is to be able to pray to you, the author and the creator of everything. We pray this morning for all worship services that are taking place today, whether in person or online. We thank you for the blessings that you have given us and will continue to give us. We pray for our church, our church staff, and our pastor for their protection and health. Father, let us not forget the awesome wonderfulness that we can come together in this place and at this time to worship you. Let us never take for granted the, this gift or trivialize the meaning of worship. Open our hearts and our minds today to hear your word. And lastly, Father, may the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing unto you. Amen. I have a couple goals today. Uh, number one, I want to share my love of studying God's word. Number two, I want to give you some reasons to be able to handle questions that may come your way, give you some key verses, and then some resources. Uh, I'm a teacher, so I need some participation today. So it's okay to raise your hand or say something out loud. It's okay. So we're going to try that first. Everybody just raise your hand. Okay, good. So we're great with that. Now, how many of you know who Mr. Rogers is or was? Right, how many of you watched one of his shows? Well, I had a colleague at Winthrop a number of years ago give me this book. And it's a fun little book, and I was enjoying reading it. And um, I had to go someplace for a appointment and so I got all my stuff together and I had the book in this hand and I got to the car and I couldn't get it all in there so I put the book on top of the car and got everything else in and looked at my watch and realized I'm going to be late so I got in the car does anybody know the rest of the story of what happened I know that none of you have ever done anything like that so I got to my appointment and I, I, I'm looking for the book because you know I'm going to have to wait some time and I can't find it and I'm thinking I've lost my mind and by the way, that's a thought I have more often as I get older. And I can't find my wallet or my glasses or my keys or my phone. So, and I'm, I'm thinking, and I went, 
Oh man, I left it on top of the car. And so I drove home very carefully, hoping to find it, looking around, never found it. So I assume someone picked it up. And you know what? I kind of hope they read it, especially if they weren't a Christian. You know, I'm not that sure that's how you're supposed to spread God's word, but um, I need to be, and I want to be a little more intentional with that today. Well, I also want to do a full pretest. So I'm going I'm to give you a Bible verse. I want you to fill in any part that you know. That's what teachers do. We give pretests. They asked Jesus, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and all your mind. Well, that's actually very close. And so you can look at each other. If you're you're okay with social distance, look at each other and go, you're so bright. Just tell that to each other. You're so bright. And you have the fill in the blank. I want to take a moment and talk about something that is there. You love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength. Back then, the heart was this, the seat of all emotion and passion. So you love the go, go, uh, your God with all your passions and emotions. The soul was considered the, the body and life. And of course, the mind means the intellect. There's a difference between the brain and the mind. It's an active willfulness. Now, I want you to know, I've looked up this verse in multiple versions and it's almost always the same. You know, some versions change things a lot. Uh, this one's pretty consistent, right through the message and everything else. What's really cool is that there's a progression if we go through this. In Deuteronomy, it says heart, soul, strength. Then in Matthew, it says heart, soul, mind. In Mark, it puts them all together. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I think the word strength actually applies back to the other three. You're to use all your strength to worship him with your heart. You're to use all your strength to worship him with your soul. You're to use all your strength to worship him with your mind. Now notice the word all is listed every time. And in the Bible, when a word is repeated, it's often meant for emphasis. So what does it mean to be all? Well, does anybody... um, Played a sport ever in your life? Yeah. Um, I had a coach in high school that uh, had his concept of all was simply this. Give me 110%. That was his line. 110, give me 110. And we were running drills and I kind of was, he, he was saying that. And I remember thinking, I really should point out to him that mathematically you can't give more than 100. And so I thought I should let him know that. And then the better part came in and said, no, don't do that. Because if I said that, he probably would try to get 110% out of me by making me run some extra laps. But I want to go all in. But I want to go back to Mr. Rogers for a second. In that book, there was a line that hit me. And every day before Mr. Rogers went on the television, he said the following prayer. Lord, may a word that is heard be yours. And that just hit me. What if every day we as Christians woke up and said, Lord, today, may a word that is heard be yours. And that is also my prayer today. Before I go any farther, 
We're going to talk about the intellect and the mind today. But you can only take someone so far. And this is the key verse for everything I say. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. Even though you might study and have answers, it's not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For the last 25 years, I've spent most of my time uh, outside of Winthrop helping schools change their culture. Culture is not easy to change, and when you go into a school and says, I want you to teach differently, or I want you to have a different time, some people fight change. Some people don't like change. And so this is what I came up with try to explain that. There's only three ways that you can make a decision. You can talk to others or observe the behavior of others. You can gather evidence for yourself or you can experience it for yourself. Now the best story I have for that is my wife. And so a number of years ago when our kids were teenagers, um, who, makes, who plans the trips in your family, by the way? Okay, yeah get in line wives um, not only is she good at it and she's a family trap trip planner extraordinaire she enjoys it and so we were going up to the mountains of Georgia near the Tennessee and uh, North Carolina borders and she was looking at side trips we could do while we were there and she said to me do you think the kids would enjoy a white water rafting trip and I came out to her and said kids I want to do that I've never done that I've always wanted to do that and then so uh, she th- looked around and you could get different kinds of rapids. Anybody been on a whitewater trip? So you know how the rapids work? One is almost no whitewater, four is woohoo. All right, so at that moment as she's looking through this, she says, um, what, what, we should probably do a one and a two. And I said, I think that's gonna be too tame. And it was at that moment I found out, discovered that she's a little scared of whitewater. And so, um, but the kids came out and they said, no, we need to do some threes and fours. And so they talked her into it. And I'm still impressed to this day that she hit the button to make that reservation. Well, she second guessed that pretty much every day up to the trip and kept thinking, we should, maybe we, could, we have time to change, we could switch. And she talked to the kids and the kids said, no, this would be great. My daughter had actually been on one, uh, the only member of the family. She said, no, three, four is great. So she, she had all kinds of evidence talking to others, but she still wasn't sure. So we get up there. She's still fretting a bit, a bit about it. We get on the car to drive up to where you'll get the raft or at least get the training. We get our gear. We go to a little room and um, a, a guy comes up who's a trainer and he gives us some instructions on what to do. And he gets to the part where he says, if you fall out of the boat, don't panic, but don't get caught by a rock and drown. And I kind of look over at the wife and she's a little white now. I'm still impressed to this day that she got on the bus to go up to get the raft. And we get up there and we get the raft out and we don't go down the river, we go right off to the side and we're getting ready to get in and she looks at me and I hear this, I don't think I can do this. And I whisper back, it's okay, we'll meet you down there. And then I hear, no, I'm gonna do this. And she gets in the boat and still, I'm still impressed with that. And we start down the river and we hit the first thing is some rapids. And I'm having a blast, I'm yelling, screaming, smiling. I look at my kids, they're yelling, screaming, screaming. And I look at my wife, and she's yelling, screaming, smiling, so this is good. And we get to the bottom of that first rapids, and she goes to the, to the guy, uh, the, the trainer, was that a one or a two? And he says, no, ma'am, that was a four. And my wife changed. And her face lit up. She goes, that was a four? Bring it on. See, she'd done research. She'd talked to others, but she did to experience it first. I want to talk about some key verses 
for your mind, and there's a place to fill in some things on your chart. First of all, Isaiah 1.18 says, come now, let us reason together, reason together. To reason together, you have to use your mind. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, we demolish arguments and capture every thought. To demolish an argument, you have to have planned, you have to have prepared. If you are a... Um, coach and you don't practice your defense, you're you're not going to win. You need to have everything ready. The second half of that is simply this. You need to capture every thought. I will tell you that is one of the most difficult things I could think of because the brain goes places and sometimes the mind has to go, no, come back. And so it's a willful act of the mind to capture every thought. 1 John 4.10 says, test the spirits. This is not a test like I would give. It's Look at it. In fact, I ask you today to go home and test what I said. Make sure that I have given the words correctly. It means you have to look at it and study and be prepared for it. Another verse, Matthew 22, 29. You are in error because you do not know the scriptures. The only way to know the scriptures is to study and to read and be prepared. Paul reasoned in Acts 17, 2 and 16, 17, twice. He went into the synagogues and for three days reasoned with those there and then later in Athens he reasoned there. Now, Paul, one of my favorite statements from Paul was that I only want to teach Christ and him crucified. So he was using logic and reason to talk to the, the Jews and to the Greeks. He was using his mind. We're asked to use our mind, to reason together, and I want to reason together with you. This is the main verse. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this in gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you, your good behavior in Christ, may be shamed of their slander. Now we're going to unpack this in just a moment, but there's some things I want to point out. Notice the first line. In your heart, we talked about that, your passion, your energy, your enthusiasm, your emotions, in your heart, set that apart for Christ. And then it says, be prepared kind of a Boy Scout model. I had to be prepared for trips that I went on. And then I like the next part. To give an answer to everyone who um, asks you to give a reason for the hope you have. Right now in today's world, I think hope is missing. And when hope is missing, you, you get angry. You lash out. You destroy. I think that we be, need to be out there saying, I have hope. And if you're interested, I'll tell you why. You have to be able to give a reason. The last part of that verse says that if you stand up for truth, you're going to be slandered. People are going to talk against you. But we're not to let that bother us. We're to continue to be gentle with respect. And eventually, they'll come around to see what we're doing. So let's unpack it a bit more. First of all, apologetics. The word for answer in that verse where it says give an answer is apologia, and that means apologetics. And that's a strange word, and it confuses a lot of people. We are not apologizing for our faith, for we're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Apology means give a reason. And again, a reason means 
You have to give multiple reasons, answers, questions. And so the study of apologetics is the study of what's, how Christianity is true. And we're able to testify to that. And we're going to talk about that a lot. Be gentle. Not the way that the world communicates now. You know, I don't know, it was 10 or 15 years ago when it changed. Our culture changed. And it used to be you could argue with someone and you could win by the basis of the strength of your arguments and the logic of your arguments. And today it just seems if I out yell you, I win. And, and I don't, I don't, we can't do that. And that bothers me because you could, you could have the better argument for some person thinks they've won if they out yell you. Because you know what? You can't yell someone into faith. But you can lead them there with some answers. Answers for the reason, for the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. On this scale, I want you to do a self-assessment. How prepared are you to give an answer for the reason? The basic question that everybody asks and the basic foundation of Christianity is Christ and him crucified and raised from the dead. So if someone came up to you and said, and by the way, I see this at times, if someone came up to you and said, really, how do you know Christ lived? How do you know he died by the cross? And really, did, do you have any evidence that he was raised from the dead? Now, our first answer is yes, because he's in my heart, and I know the difference before and after. But there are people out there that that's not enough. So are you prepared? The verse said, be prepared. How prepared are you? From a scale of 100, just pick a number. I'm not going to ask you this is safe. But I want you to self-assess. You got your number? Okay. Why do we need to do this? Well, as a college professor, I can tell you the following. 60 to 80% of our high school seniors, when they go to college and become freshmen during that year, they walk away from their faith. And that's just terrifying to me. Now, at Winthrop, we have a group called Rational Christie and some others that, that are there for it. But when we survey these kids that give up on their faith, we say, why did you do that? And they say, we had questions and nobody gave us answers. So those of you that have children that are under that age, are you prepared to give the answers so they'll have them before they get to college? Do you have neighborhood children? Do you have family friends? So my biggest concern, one of them anyway, is young people walk away. Second, there are people who do not know. And they have questions. They're searching. You can tell they're searching by looking at the world today. So having answers, being prepared, will help you for that. And finally, it's for you. Because all believers have doubts. Timothy Keller, who started a church, inner city New York, um, an evangelical church, they say you can't do that, and he has built a big church there. I read this, and I had to think about this for a bit. He says, a faith without some doubt is like a human body without any antibodies in it. So by the way, have we learned a lot more than we've ever wanted to learn about antibodies in the last six months? Antibodies say that you are healthy or can't get the disease. So antibodies for us is studying. Because when you have doubt, if you've studied the word, it becomes the cure for your doubt. And so studying should be something that you do just to make your own faith stronger. We're going to spend some time talking now specifically about some evidence. 
So again, at the end of the next few moments, I'm gonna ask you if you can raise your preparedness scale. First, minimal facts. Gary Habermas, one of the experts on the resurrection, says that there are some things that all New Testament scholars agree on. Now, these are New Testament scholars who are in the church, and some are outside the church. I kind of don't understand that, but they're New Testament scholars, and they study this. And they could be Jewish or anything, but they're experts. And they agree on four things. One, Christ lived. Two, Christ was crucified. Three, his believers believed that they saw him. And four, based upon that belief, they changed. They agree on those four. Christ lived, Christ died, crucifixion. The believers, disciples believed they saw him. And four, changed. We stop right here, right now, and look back through history, and something happened at a particular point in time that changed everything to where we are now. Something happened. And so these New Testament scholars say it's these four things. Now notice they didn't actually talk about whether they believed or not, so we have to go to the next one. We have documentary evidence. I'm gonna ask you right now to pretend you're in a jury, in a courtroom. And at the end of this, will you have been able to go by reasonable doubt, past reasonable doubt, and say, yes, this makes sense, this is true. One of the things you need is documentary evidence. Well, we have documents from Roman historians and Jewish historians, and you have to remember those two groups didn't like Christians in Christ. They were writing histories of their people. And they wrote that someone named Christ lived, was a teacher, died by crucifixion, and then some of them actually wrote that his believers felt that he was raised from the dead. So they put it in their histories. And these histories were written shortly after the time. We're talking about 20, 30 years after Christ. So we have documentary evidence, and that helps win a court of law as well. We have circumstantial evidence. Now, in a courtroom, in a trial, you may not have any eyewitnesses, but if you have enough circumstantial evidence, you can make a decision. In fact, most criminal cases are determined by circumstantial evidence. And the number one circumstantial evidence we have is cultural change. If you talk to cultural historians, who knew those people existed? If you talk to cultural historians, they will say to you, cultures don't change quickly. Anybody see out there someone trying to change a culture and they're having a little difficulty and there's some pushback coming? It takes a long time to change a culture. Three evidences of culture change. Number one, baptism. Baptism was not normal during that time. It is clearly a Christian tradition. That's a cultural change. Second, the Lord's Supper. That didn't exist. It did shortly after. We, have, we, have, uh, we know that it happened early in church history that it became a sacrament of the church. The most important one is the fact that the followers of Christ changed their worship date and time from Monday, I mean, sorry, from Friday night, Saturday to Sunday. And that was instantaneous. Now, That's an amazing culture change because back then, their faith wasn't just a worldview, it was everything. It was their social life, it was their religious life, it was their political life, and it was their economic life. They gave up everything to switch to Sunday. That just doesn't happen. That is 
circumstantial evidence. And we also have, under research, we can find out that there's some embarrassing details. How many people know Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and other things you shouldn't go on? Okay, most people, when they go on those things, they put their good days, their best days, when good things happen. If it's not good, it's because um, something horrible's happened and they need prayer or they want support. Rarely do people continually put stuff out there about dumb things that they do. Well, the gospel writers who wrote the gospels, who were the church leaders, they left in all kinds of embarrassing details about themselves. People who write biographies often leave stuff out and our politicians right now say, don't worry about what I did a long time ago. But they included it, which would weaken their argument. And if you go through the the Gospels, they did some really silly stuff. You know, uh, uh, trying to decide who's first and not paying attention, having to ask Christ what he'd mean and Christ going, you guys so thick. They left all that in, which gives testimony to the accuracy of their writings. We're now going to go over to observing. And under observe, the first one we're going to talk about is a missing motive. J. Warner Wallace, who was a homicide detective and uh, atheist, used his reasoning and his evidence and his detective skills to look at the actual evidence and became convinced that Christianity was true. And he says in his life that human beings, specifically criminals, only have three motives for committing a crime. Greed, power, and lust. And he says that the disciples had none of those motives. They certainly were not going to get rich. They certainly were not going to get any power. And being a Christian wasn't very attractive. In fact, it was against the law and a crime. So there's no motive unless there was one motive. And that was the risen Savior. It changed everything. Further along those lines, however, is that the first eyewitnesses were women. If you're going to write a story to make you look good, to tell other people about the truth of Jesus Christ, to convince them to become Christian, you want to tell a true story, right? Or how about an accurate story? Or what about this? Back in that day, women were um, not culturally accepted that well. They had very little power. In fact, they couldn't even testify. So to have women as the first witnesses would weaken the argument. Oh, and by the way, while the women were out finding Jesus, where were the disciples? They were cowering, terrified behind a door. And that would make them look worse. So the fact that they used women is evidence to the accuracy of the Gospels. Then we have multiple eyewitnesses. According to the Bible, over 400 people saw Christ over 40 days in various places. And I've I've heard that for a long time, and I went, "Ah, that's really cool. But part of it never hit me that... Those eyewitnesses were still around when the Gospels were being written. And so, if the Gospel writers had written stuff that wasn't true, they could have said, well, wait, that's not the way that happened. They have to be true because they were still there. But those same eyewitnesses could also tell the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, when they start saying things, that's not the way it happened either. So those eyewitnesses. So we have eyewitnesses. We have circumstantial evidence. We have documents. Do we need any more? Well, let's talk about experiencing it. The transformation of the early disciples. We've already kind of talked about that. But they went from cowering, terrified behind doors to being bold and going out and being willing to step up and share the gospel. It was an amazing transformation. 
Those things don't happen without a reason, and we're here to talk about reason. And then their willingness to die. Now, I will grant you that there are people in history who have died for something they believed in. Whether that belief was accurate or true or not, there are people that have done that. I dare you to find very many people who have died for a lie that they knew was a lie. That's not how human beings work. They don't want to, be su- they don't want to suffer. They don't want to be stoned. They don't want to be persecuted. They don't want to be crucified for a lie. And you don't keep up pain over a lifetime if you know it's a lie. You eventually quit and go back. So the fact that the disciples were willing to give up their lives and sacrifice all that meant that they knew the truth. If they had not seen the risen Christ, they spent the rest of their lives on a lie and died for it, and that just doesn't happen. They knew Christ was alive because they had seen him, and they were willing to make the change. This is my favorite one. I'm sorry, I get excited about this stuff. You guys excited about this stuff? You getting good stuff? You're right now? Okay, sorry, teacher. This is my favorite. The enemy supports us. Who's the enemy? The Jewish leaders and religious. Because you know what? They didn't want Christianity to succeed. They wanted to stop it. If you remember the stories, they arrested people. They, they pulled in Peter and said, stop it. And they said, we're going to do it anyway. They, they, they stoned Stephen. They sent Paul, uh, Saul out to kill people. They wanted to stop it. They could have stopped it any time they wanted to, any time, the first four or five weeks or first month, just by producing the body. Oh, you believe in a resurrected Christ? Well, here's the body. We'll, ball, we'll get him out of the cave again. We'll walk him around the streets and you can come up and say, there's Christ, he's... They could have put him outside the temple and said, come see your risen Christ. There was no body for them to do that, so they had to try other ways. And my favorite other way is they had to invent a story. Let's say the disciples stole the body. Really, those same guys that were too terrified to go on their own behind locked doors found enough strength to get out and go steal the body? Really? Terrified of the Roman soldiers? Really? But let me just say it again. You don't have to come up with a story of a missing body unless there's a missing body. So the very people that wanted to stop Christianity couldn't. And they're the enemy of Christianity. How cool is that? If it's true that Jesus was raised from the dead, and I think I've given you enough evidence for it, then everything is true. Everything he said about the Old Testament, everything he said about the New Testament, everything he said about hope and joy and salvation and a home forever with him is true. Amen to that. And if it is true, that you trust him, that means God raised Jesus from the dead and you can trust him with everything else. You're worried about a virus? I understand. We have hope. You're worried about riots? We have hope. You're worried about the future? We have hope. And we need to give the reason for that hope. On the question, did Christ live? Was he crucified? Was he raised? Did you get to move the preparedness scale? 
It's helpful if you say yes. Did you get to move with the prepared? You got 10 good reasons now? It's like my wife. Bring it on. Let me have that question. So, where are you on this now? Observing others, we at the church ask you to come often. Ask us, observe us. Let us show you what we mean by this. Research, I'm going to give you some more uh, sources that you can do, some, and experience some. By the way, if you are not a Christian, the best way to find out is to go ahead and do it. Give your heart and your soul and your mind to Christ holy and see the difference. And you'll know the rest of it is true. Next steps. It's okay to not have all the answers. I've been teaching Bible for a very long time, but I don't have them all yet. Continue to move your preparedness scale up on different questions and this question. Use one or more sources that I'm about to give you and where are you in the decision triangle? Josh McDowell was an angry young Christian. I'm sorry, an angry young anti-Christian, an atheist. And uh, he was abused by his father. So the very concept of a father drove him nuts. And so he decided to prove Christianity wrong and he gathered evidence and evidence and evidence and at some point he went, I'm not getting evidence against Christianity, I'm getting evidence for, became a Christian. And he wrote those books, more, he's written more than that. Um, the book More Than a Carpenter was the, was the book that got me to go from I'm a Christian to being all in as a Christian. The word all is there. The um, book Evidence of Man's Verdict has a new edition. It came out two years ago. It's about that thick. And um, I'm actually listening to it 58 hours later. So, um, but it's really got good stuff. And so I recommend it. Frank Turk and um, Norma Gosser up in Charlotte, they wrote this book. And if, this is a much easier read, but it's really fun. It talks about the Gospels, how they're true, when they were written. It even goes into science and creationism. So it's a wonderful resource if you want to move your preparedness scale. Lee Strobel was a journalist and an atheist, and his wife started becoming a Christian, and he wanted to stop that. So he decided to interview people and to get information and to prove Christianity was wrong, and part of the way through that, boom, he became obvious that if he was going to be honest to himself, that Christianity was true, became a Christian, written some great books. The actual book, uh, Case for Christ, is actually a movie. I think it's on Amazon, so a great thing to watch with your family. J. Warner Wallace, I mentioned, he was an atheist, a homicide detective that had seen the worst of the worst. He, over time, became a Christian through evidence and documentation. He wrote a series of books, uh, and one of them is called Cold Case Christianity. That's a, uh, a read that you could do with your kids. It's a good read. Timothy Keller has written this. This has come out in the last couple of years. I'll be honest with you, I'm two-thirds of the way through this, and I'm finding this book phenomenal. It's answering wonderful questions that I still have. And I recommend it. And just for fun, Francis Collins is a scientist. And by the way, there are many scientists who are Christians. He was in charge of the Genome Project. He was the scientist that found it and discovered it and mapped it. And he got in there and he was already Christian, but he says there's a language for God and a language for creation and a language for Christ. That is my email. And um, if you want any more resources, I'm happy to do that with you. When I go back, if it is true that Christ was raised from the dead, that everything else is true. It is the simple faith of Mr. Rogers. And I hope that today, you've been able to move your preparedness scale. And I'd like to go back to the Father in prayer. So would you bow your heads, your minds, and your hearts with me? Father, you gave us a heart to yearn for you. You gave us a soul that longs for you. 
you gave us a mind to search for you. You gave us strength to use each of these three to be closer to you and to give a reason for our faith. I ask you to encourage each of us to use our minds to learn more about you and your creation. Help us to have more reasons for our faith and be willing to share. Give us a double portion of wisdom. Give us the knowledge and power not to be hiding behind locked doors, but to take the boldness of our faith and our minds out to the world to make a difference and give them hope. For we are not ashamed of the gospel, but we have reasons to be bold. Protect our church and our staff. Watch over us until we can return again. And until we can, keep us safely in the palm of your hand. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.